Welcome, bienvenue, and welcome to the Westminster Impact Podcast, Episode 4. This is the podcast that casts its beady eyes over all the developments at the University of Westminster, focusing on the innovative projects currently at play and the progressive people that have walked its halls. Now, you may have noticed that things sound a little different on this episode of the podcast, and that is because we have our new intro music. The winner of our competition was Tony Onachukwu, Westminster alumnus, receiving an MSc in audio production in 2019, who we are pleased to announce will be joining us next time out. And I think it's fair to say he isn't your usual music graduate. And if you like this little teaser into some of Tony's abilities, then you'll be pleased to hear that he has an EP out in the new year on Moshi Moshi Records under the name of New Garcon. So go check him out. Um, but now it's time to crack on with our episode in this instalment. So we're going to be focusing on just three examples of projects that have been funded by one of the university's longest standing and generous funders, the Quinton Hogg Trust. Indeed, the QHT was founded back in 1903 in memory of Quinton Hogg, the founder of the Regent Street Polytechnic, which has evolved to become the University of Westminster today. The Trust provides grant-making to let projects and activities operating within the university alone, and as you're about to hear, these can range from site refurbishments to international field trips and placements to learning facilities. As long as the students of Westminster benefit, the QHT has been there. As ever, if you wish to get in contact or you have a topic you'd like to feature or even be involved in the podcast, please get in contact with us at impact podcast at westminster.ac.uk but now let's dive straight in and explore some of these remarkable projects some of which are still in their infancy and others which have already been seeing the benefits of the QHT's funding. Amar will now kick us off chatting with Maria Kramer about the Let's Build project. To begin, I'm happy to welcome Maria Kramer, Senior Lecturer in Architecture and Cities at the University of Westminster and Director of Architecture and Design Firm Room 102 Limited, who is going to showcase the wonderful Let's Build project as financed by the Quentin Hogg Trust. Thank you, Maria. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. No problem, you're welcome. So without getting too gushy, can I just say I think this is absolutely wonderful and it's so rare to be able to find an example of a win-win project that covers and enables such a wide array of people to achieve their goals. Therefore, can you very simply provide an overview of what has been set out to occur with QHT funding in Let's Build? 
Yes. So thank you, first of all, for inviting me to this podcast. We are very lucky to have received QHD funding for this exciting project, um, which is about building a community hub in Wolfen Forest. The project firstly provides students the unique opportunity to participate in a live project. This means it is a real project that will be designed in collaboration and built eventually, and they have so far taken part in public engagement in collaboration with the council. Mm -hmm. They've been meeting local community groups. Um, they met ne the nearby church, uh, another stakeholder, and the regeneration team. So students um, gain direct experience, hands-on experience of the design and building construction process. They're enhancing and broadening their range of skills and developing their confidence. Mm -hmm. So secondly, it is a great opportunity for the local community and community groups, which have very little new chances due to gentrification and um, also austerity. Mm -hmm. The project is located in an area from which we recruit students of high deprivation. Um, and we will provide, in collaboration with the council, a space for the local community to use. Mm -hmm. So the project aims to be beacons of community engagement and to inspire young people. So, and thirdly, this is a great project for the university. It showcases what we do within the local communities, reaching out to where students actually come from provides a great opportunity to have a presence locally. Mm -hmm. In our case, the borough is the third largest intake of students at the university. We previously held an exhibition locally at the One Street Gallery near the William Morris Gallery, initiated by Wilfred Achiel, from the university who's local to the area. And this started the initial process of local engagement. Sounds really good. Um, in terms of how it's getting all the students involved. Um, and you know, I think it hits all the kind of areas, um, you know, at Westminster, like, you know, helping students to get those kind of opportunities that they perhaps wouldn't otherwise have access to. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's really, uh, you know, it's really, um, I think the, the students profit so much from this mm -hmm. um, because I think they understand the complexity of architecture in a much more, uh, I guess, real way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in academia, the problem is that it's kind of quite, um, I don't want to say, you know, separate from reality. Mm -hmm. It isn't, you know, but it kind of, I think it really um, provides um it, it kind of merges the, the advantages of both. We have the freedom in, an, in, in academia and in studying to think about things thoroughly without the pressure of market sure. and in finance. Um, but at the same time, sometimes that makes you kind of think on cloud number nine and <laughs> too, too far away, yeah. I would say. Yeah. And I think it's somehow really the best of both worlds. And I always have this aim of bridging the gap between academia and practice. And I think that really brings it together. That's nice, nice, brilliant. So I know we just sort of touched on it briefly just there, um, you know, with the strength of the project being how it helps students and also, like you've said, um, you know, the local community. So, like, you know, just kind of expanding on that, can you just explain um, how many different partners and elements are involved in a project like this, especially the involvement of not just the architecture students, uh, but the application of the CEC? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a difficult question, because if I think too much about it, I kind of get um, overwhelmed slightly because mm -hmm. so many different parties are involved. Mm -hmm. um, having said that, the, the different um, people are taking part, uh, different phases of the project, let's say, mm -hmm. but it's, it's a huge array. Um, so um, 
So initially, obviously, we have the council's regeneration team very much on board, um, who helped us also, you know, supporting throughout. Um, they are helping us to, um, uh, you know, fix, have the site available. It's it's council owned, uh, and we have nearly every week or every other week we have meetings with them. Mm -hmm. We have meetings with local community groups. Um, we're also talking very early on with makers who will support us in the construction process. Um, we're working with the technical department, Will McLean and Pete Silver, and also, as mentioned, Wilfred Eichel, who's a mentor and, and is um, part of the overall process. Mm -hmm. We'll be working with the Fab Lab and also with Harrow Campus to be able to do some one-to-one -one prototyping. Yeah. And we work with structural engineers. You will have to do planning, building control. It's a long process. With regards <laughs> to the Creative Enterprise um, Center, so we are uh, at the moment actually um, exploring the potential cross collaboration, and we've done it uh, previously, and now we're trying to get more, um, uh, you know, more, more hands-on mm -hmm. with regards to a potential apprenticeship, and also there could be the possibility for the project to be integrated into a work-based learning, work-based learning with a business school mm -hmm. to design a business plan. Wow. So we're looking into working with the university, also with this university social enterprise center, I think it's quite new. Yeah. And I think also supported by the QHT. And so because they're kind of crossovers, because, you know, we are doing engagement. It's a social value project. So there, there is a lot of crossovers and it, there's kind of some excitement there. And I think the social enterprise center is currently being, um, you know, set up. So, you know, I have discussions with Paul Dias, how we can cross over. Um, so that no, sounds really good. I like how there's so many different parts of Westminster pulling together for this. Sounds really good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, I think potentially collaboration works best maybe if you have a project because yeah. you kind of, you know, forced to work together. Sometimes, you know, you kind of come up with these ideas, but actually it's kind of, you know, we have an aim. We have an aim together. It's not fixed, the aim, especially with regards to operation and how we do workshops and so on. But, you know, we, we it's kind of focusing towards something and that mm -hmm. helps, I think, to collaborate cross-disciplinary. Brilliant. So this isn't the first project you've had uh, that the QHT has funded and seen students develop a design from concept to reality. Uh, so I've seen the Woven Pavilion and the Oculus Pavilion, both exceptional pieces of architecture, uh, which have been supported by the QHT and involve student participation. Um, what do you see in the students involved in the projects over time? How do they develop as individuals as the projects come to fruition? I think that's a really great question. And thank you for your kind words in regards to Woven Pavilion and the Oculus Pavilion we previously made. And as you know, one can still see them at the, the Oculus Pavilion is at Harrow Campus forever, I think, <laughs> there at the main courtyard. And the Woven Pavilion is still at Marleybourne and eventually probably will be moved to um, Harrow as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the experience for students is transformative. Um, being able to see something built, which you have been part of designing, an idea that has been drawn up, mm -hmm. which is then built at one-to-one, -one, it's just such a fantastic experience. It's an idea come alive. It shows the potential we have, and it brings the construction experience early into students' academic career. Definitely, no, I agree. That, and, uh, yeah. No, and sorry, I, think, oh, sorry, I was yeah. just going to say, no, they are like really, really fantastic pieces, because, like, you know, having seen it myself, you know, in person you are quite like wowed by it when you see it so I was just saying well that. I yeah and I wanted to did I I'm, I'm not sure if I mentioned this here um I think I do yeah I mean I, th I th this is what I tried to tell you um in the, in the initial um uh, question previously I think we we have a unique space here to think about um 
bridging the gap also between planning and design and construction. So very often in, in architectural projects, you know, you plan, you do space planning, which is more abstract. It's more about organizing space, flow of space. And then somebody else basically builds it. And you will always kind of use, not always, but you will use traditional working methods, building methods that you've used before. Mm-hmm. And I think these pavilion projects, and actually, if you look at, you know, I don't want to compare ourselves with that, but if you look at innovation and in architecture, it's often be done in smaller scale projects because you can be more experimental. Mm-hmm. And I think we really managed to do that somehow with the pavilion. And it was great fun. I mean, the first one was, uh, you know, it's a big, huge learning curve because of all these different parties involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then with the Woven Pavilion, we, you know, we really kind of thought to learn from the Oculus Pavilion, which had, I think 300 different pieces, all CNC cut, all numbered, but still different pieces. And it's a beautiful space. And, you know, it does what it's a monocentric space. It's a beautiful space. But we really learn from the experience. And the briefing for the next one was really let's do let's take on board what we've learned. And so with the Woven Pavilion, each arch is eight pieces which standard form plywood 240 by 120 the CNC cut so and mm-hmm. you can easily put them together and also the idea was to have it more polycentric because the oculus pavilion mm-hmm. it was very uh, popular and but people would go in there and then it was kind of full i suppose and yeah. you couldn't go into um, into the space whereas the woven pavilion is more polycentric so there is more of a fluidity between the arches so you can kind of you know, it actually has a kind of bigger capacity. It's less enclosed. So, you know, these are very conscious decisions. And it's great in some ways to be able to do it twice because we could really learn from the first time. Yeah. And I must say, now with the community center, <laughs> the next logical step for, for us was really to go into the community. We've done the one-to-one build mm-hmm. within the university environment, and then let's go out there. But I feel very much like the first time doing the pavilion. It's just a very new uh, com- very complex, you know, about operation, about, you know, engagement in the community. It's a different animal, but, you know, we've, we've done the pavilions, we managed to do them, so we'll manage that as well, and it's exciting. No, it does sound very exciting, no, it's, it's really good for the future. Saying that, moving on to the next question, so obviously this year's, you know, seen many people's best laid plans go out of the window, um, so what impact has COVID had on Let's Build, and have you had to adapt the deliverance of the project for future years? Um, again, it's a really good question. Um, so we are very lucky because uh, it's a three-year project, mm-hmm. and um, so so again, in a kind of academic space, we're trying to be less under time pressure, so we have actually time to think and develop. You know, often mm-hmm. you know when you're out there, you just need to deliver, and you actually don't have that. So so because it's a three-year project, we really um, wanted initially uh, in the first year to design and prototype. Yeah. So so far, we obviously you know with uh, you know with COVID measures, and you know we don't have that much face to face, and we have slightly less um, site visits and so on. But so far. Uh, because uh, mainly because we're at the very beginning of the design process, mm-hmm. um, uh, we are fine. Uh, hopefully, in term two, we'll be able to manage to do um, prototyping, mm-hmm. one-to-one prototyping, which was the plan. However, if we are not able to do that, then it might have an impact. But again, I think hopefully, cross fingers, yeah. we'll, we'll be able to catch up. So yeah. luck, I think we're quite lucky. If it would be a one-year project, we would not be able to do it. No. But this way, I think we can just hopefully cross fingers. Yeah. Build well, hopefully um, time's on your side and hopefully, you know, <laughs> things are over sooner rather than later so you can 
um, yeah. you know, continue what you have planned. Okay, so finally, so I know we spoke about this previously, uh, previously on um, earlier in the interview, but I'd just like to take a moment again to note the wider participation element of this project and, you know, the communities that are being affected by these developments are areas of high deprivation. Um, so I guess it'd be good to hear from you that why it matters that we engage these areas and what has been the response from these communities to the university's involvement. Um, again, fantastic question. So the council and the local communities are very keen for university to get involved locally and are welcoming us with open arms. Um, they see the issues firsthand and know that education, upskilling and aspiration are especially important for less adventurous areas, helping with employment and getting kids off the street. So I was always in my, um, you know, setting the brief for the students, I was always really looking for areas where we can be especially useful, uh, where there is a greater need. Um, it can be tough for students initially to see the deprivation, but we show them examples of great transformation and ask mm -hmm. them to be visionary and they can see firsthand what a positive impact their work, their, their work can have. Um, they really the, the aim is to strengthen the identity of the local area and enhance this in, uh, by inspiring design. I need to just tell you one example of one of my students. Sure. Um, she interviewed a homeless person, okay. and um, she 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 basically um, uh, sketched up the life of a bench uh, mm -hmm. in 24 hours. And that she interviewed the the homeless person who knew exactly what was happening in the morning and lunchtime, who would come by, he would do the stretching exercise when the mothers come with their children, and then he would occupy uh, the bench in, in the nighttime. Mm -hmm. And um, so this is part of the analysis. You know, we look at architecture and design very holistically, you know, yep. the urban context, as you can see. And, um, and at the end of the interview, the, the homeless person actually cried because somebody would actually listen to him. Mm -hmm. And it had quite a huge impact and it's, it's a beautiful uh, piece of work and has obviously she's now thinking of how to integrate that uh, into the overall design. But um, so, it, you know, it, it's quite um, it, it, even the public consultation, I think I mentioned at the beginning, mm -hmm. which we're doing, we're doing live consultations. So the students develop questions to ask the local community before mm -hmm. any design is being done. Yeah. And, um, you know, what do you think about the area? What are the positives? What are the negatives? What would they like to change? Yeah. They try to get a wide range of people um, involved. And it gives them, because in some ways, locals are the experts of the mm -hmm. area. And yeah. it gives them a real good insight. Definitely. No, it sounds fantastic. I mean, it's very inspiring, I think, you know, the sort of wide-reaching kind of impact of a project like this, you know, not only just for the students, but you know, the local area and, you know, how people can benefit from, you know, the ones that live in the local area. I guess it's a good way for, um, you know, the students involved to kind of leave their mark, as it were, um, on something that, you know, will have um, a long-term impact and effect on the people that have access to it. Absolutely. And actually, I wanted to mention when you said talked about the pavilions, it's really mm -hmm. interesting. We still benefit from them. I mean, we're lucky they're still up. But a lot of my current students who were not involved in the pavilion have yeah. seen them. And we actually had a workshop where we compared the two. I kind of tried to explain, you know, our different approaches. And, you know, we asked them, what do you think about them? And we talk about construction. So they even now very much still benefit from from these, uh, from these, uh, you know, from the pavilion structures we developed with previous yeah. students, and um, and even, uh, and I think it will be the same for the community. I mean, it's for the community hub. It will be a three-year project, so it will go across students anyway. Mm -hmm. But even now, you know, I'm still in contact with the students who built the the pavilions, and it's truly transformational. They they are 
you know, it is a real bonding um, exercise. And they, they, I know afterwards, many did work in groups, did competitions, started their own thing because it's it's such a um, fantastic experience. That's brilliant. So yeah, thank you so much, Maria, uh, for the you. opportunity to discuss what is a project that has such a remarkable reach and impact on numerous participants. Um, all that leaves me to say really is to watch this space. And if you're interested in learning more about the developments in the next three years, please do get in contact with us at impact-podcast at westminster.ac.uk or maria at m.kramer at westminster.ac.uk. Thank you again, Maria, for your time. Thank you so much. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Simai Salasevic, and I'm the Development Team's Fundraising Officer. As you will have heard, the Quintanoc Trust has been instrumental in the provision of opportunities for our students, but they needn't be alone. We have multiple programs that we are currently accepting funding, and we are always looking for charitable support to maximize their output, especially at this time, when student experiences have been so badly affected by the global situation. The COVID-19 Response Fund, as showcased in the first Impact podcast episode, needs more support than ever since our most vulnerable students attempt to navigate this brave new world of blended learning, relying on digital platforms that they don't have appropriate access to. However, university life must go on and we have to make sure the physical sites are not only fit for purpose, but innovative and designed for Westminster students. Therefore, we have two exciting progressive capital developments in the works. One based at 29 Marlebone Road and another, the performing arts legend, the Soho Poly Theatre. And wireless, we are here for the needs of our students. We are proud of our inclusive and diverse student body, many of which include those that have difficult or disadvantaged backgrounds. We have our estranged students and care leaver support fund, as well as our recent foray into the world of prison education, making sure that the world you come from doesn't define the future that is set ahead of you. If you are interested in learning more about any of these incredible opportunities and how you might be able to help, either philanthropically or through advocacy, then please visit the website link in the episode description or contact development at westminster.ac.uk. Thank you. And now back to the impact of the Quinton Oak Trust funding. Right, so I am thrilled to be joined by Carol Pearson, who's the academic consultant for the Your Potential, Your Success project um, here at the University of Westminster, who's going to talk us through this project, um, which upon learning about, quite frankly, I found utterly fascinating. So firstly, thank you, Carol. Um, and the project name uh, is beautifully vague, <laughs> and it actually <laughs> took me a while to understand it. But from first view, I think oh, how I understand it is it's psycho a psychological training program that really supports the student's educational journey 
they're great at understanding their own current thought processing, um, which allows them to embolden and reinforce their mindset for a better life, effectively. So, okay, how far am I from the truth? And maybe can you provide a bit of a broad description of the program anyway? Well, I'd say you're not too far off, but I think to, oh, <laughs> I think I need to explain this a little bit more, uh, particularly for people who want to listen to this, because I think it's important to understand the methodology behind it, the way it runs slightly, etc. So if you bear with me on that, I think yeah. particularly important is the methodology in that it's very eclectic in nature. Um, you said about it, it uses it's a psychological approach. Well, it's it's more than that. It actually also adapts aspects of personal development training and coaching techniques as well. Um, and it's really quite unique. Um, I've got to admit that when I was first asked to run two pilot studies at the university, when I was working at the university, I was highly skeptical when I first saw the pro uh, uh, read the information about the program. Because mm. I think as a psychologist, I wasn't quite sure how this eclectic approach would work. But I have to say, seeing is believing. And I think I really changed my viewpoint. Um, it is very challenging. And it is about changing people's mindsets. And indeed, it, the whole program is very challenging and very confrontational at times. For example, students have to sign up to a set of rules <clears throat> uh, about the program. Um, first one, for example, and you can, um, can hear already hear um, students short intake of breath here is that no phones are allowed. Um, they oh, my to, word. <laughs> they have to switch them off at the beginning of the day. They have to put them in their bags or their coats and they're left to one side. Strict timekeeping, this too, is very much a part of it. And again, sharp intake of breath. <laughs> they have to be there in advance. They have to return from breaks at set times. And that is their rules that cannot be broken. Other things that are very challenging uh, that students have to put their hands up when they want to speak and they have to also stand up and speak. There's absolutely no hiding in this program. Everyone is expected to participate. I think what interested me as a social psychologist was just how quickly they all came together as a group. They started to develop a group cohesion very quickly, started mm -hmm. to support each other as a group. Um, and what also happened is, or happens in the program, is that they become totally engaged and totally focused. We always invite staff to come along and observe these programs. And they all leave saying it's amazing the amount of um, focus and engagement that they see from the students. Um, and I think this is so true. It, it's something that we don't always see in the teaching environment that's absolutely fantastic um and i think it's such a holistic but a really brave approach as well uh which is uh, which is so terrific to hear um okay so i've seen from uh, the original application to the quinton hogg trust that a lot of the terminology revolves around words like resilience and robust mental well-being and I guess what I'm really trying to find out is, is um, what, what is the need for this type of cognitive program or what's been identified in young people that they need this level of support? The basic idea is that we can help students to do better. Um, and what we know is, and as a senior tutor, this I was, came across my doors all the time, was that some students are more vulnerable than others. 
we know, for example, that cultural exclusion exists. You know, the culture of a university can be less than welcoming to some students, mm. students from certain backgrounds, for example, working class and ethnic, from working class and ethnic backgrounds. We know that's the case. We know that student mental ill health is a growing concern, a growing issue of concern for academia. There are other things as well. Social exclusion is another. Social exclusion leads to isolation, a lack of support networks from fellow students, a lack of social relationships. And what we all know, even our common sense tells us that peer support can play a very important role in resilience. What's interesting is though, that what we also know is that an individual's resilience is not a fixed entity. It can be developed. And what the research says through innovating teaching and training methods, we can develop resilience in students. Hence, this is what the Your Potential, Your Success program is all about. The qualitative data is phenomenal. I mean, at, at the very least, I think I've only ever had one student, one student said, didn't do much for me, but I loved it anyway. I loved being with my fellow students. I loved getting to know them, um, but it did nothing for me. At the other end, you've got students who it means everything. It's completely changed their lives. We know from the qualitative data that things, they report things like increased as, uh, aspirations, increased motivation uh, and confidence. They all report having strong relations with their friends, with their family, and even with university staff, which surprises them. Um, mm. They also say that the student training can be life-changing for them. They say it makes them more insightful. Um, and they say that all students should have the opportunity to do it. And I think all of these things and more um, clearly show that it will have an impact on the learning process. Um, if I give you a brief example, we had a student who had been to three other universities in the first year and had dropped out of each of those universities. And he had come to us. And he came into the first day of training and sat alone. Um, I went and talked to him in the breaks and he just said, I'm just here to see, I'm just here to see. Um, second time I spoke to me, he admitted, he said, you know, this is my last chance. He said, this is, I'm not going to go to another university. He said, I'm not going to drop out of another university in the first year. By the second day, he was sitting in a group of three other students in the, in the training program. Um, to cut a long story short, he passed his first year of study with a brilliant first class mark across all of his wow. modules. Uh, he's now in his final year and he has maintained that level. He said I, he knew he had it in him, but he didn't know how to get to it. Um, one other, if you bear with me, another, when I say that it improves relationships, say with family, another student who in the first day, didn't put his phone away. He hid his phone. and But we knew the phone was ringing. Uh, eventually, we got him to stand up and say, what's happening? He said, oh, it's, it's, it's my gang. They want to know what time I'm finished today, and they'll come and pick me up outside the university. He then started to talk about his mother. He said, he said the thing is, he said, my mother, single parent. He said, I don't really see her. He said, I can't remember the last time we had a conversation. 
And so the trainer said to him, well, why don't you, instead of going out with your friends straight after university, why don't you just go home? He said nothing until the next morning he came in and he immediately put up his hand and stood up. He said, I need to tell you something. He says, I didn't go with my friends last night. He said, I went straight home and he, I spoke to my mother. For the first time in two or three years, I had a conversation with my mother about what I was doing, what I was studying and, and everything. He said, and it's amazing. He said, I feel my life has been opened. So I think there are stories like that and they are story, individual stories, but you know, this program gave them the opportunity to make those changes. It's remarkable to hear those sorts of stories, the, the impact it has had. It must be so incredible to be part of it as well. Um, but I mean, also this program you've mentioned, it's not only a Westminster thing. It's been delivered alongside GRIT or formerly Youth yeah. at Risk. Um, so can you tell us a bit about what has been seen off the back of this program at other universities? And uh, are there any other real success stories elsewhere? Or uh, what are you aware of uh, as happened at, at other institutions? Okay. I I'm not, obviously, I don't work for GRIT, so it's <laughs> second-hand information. Yeah. I believe currently they're working in at least 17 other UK universities uh, running programs. Uh, some of those universities have been running GRIT programs for several years, so, you know, have, have continued the, the process. Um, I don't have access to all of the university's data, but there are there's already some in, information that's in the public domain. So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, retention and progression, buzzwords in, in higher education, very important. Nottingham Trent University has shown from their research that this, this program has an impact on progression. What they found in their students who had taken the program was that 12% more students progressed compared to their comparator groups and 10% more BME students progressed. I mean, that's a large percentage of students that were more than progression. Yeah. Kingston University, they've been running programs since 2011. And what they found is that students on GRIP programs are almost twice as likely at their university to progress to the next academic year uh, compared to uh, uh, similar groups. What's interesting is that they found that this increased retention that they're getting saves their university um, 10 pounds of every pound spent on the program. So every pound spent on the program saves them 10 pounds, basically, mm. because they're keeping students. There's also data on attainment and employee. And again, Nottingham Trent have found that the majority of students report a very positive impact on their studies. And what they found is statistically that a higher proportion of their students that completed the GRIP program gained a good grade. And 42% of BME students achieved an end of year grade of a 2-1 classification uh, compared to their, their counterparts. Yeah, and you also mentioned there about the kind of financial benefit, which obviously isn't the main purpose of it. But I mean, the Quentin Hogg Trust has obviously recognised the importance of this project. But can you just provide us with a, a final understanding as to where does this funding go? Like, what, uh, why, do, why does it matter? You know, what, why should this sort of like supplementary project be considered in the future? Well, I have to say that I'm incredibly grateful 
to Quinton Hodge, I have to say this first, because I really didn't expect this to be funded, because it is quite a different project for them to fund. Um, it's a program that's very time consuming and labor intensive. And just to give you an idea of what we've done so far with the funding. Um, we, every year we have to run between three to six weeks of enrollment uh, days. Basically to be part of the three day program, they have to attend a one day introductory session. Uh, and this is actually the beginning of the program for us because many students at this stage, we can help without them doing the program. So that one hour we get students who we can refer to student services or um, to their tutors or other, other student services in the university. To date, we have run three one-day student introductory training programs specifically for level three foundation and level four uh, first-year students. Foundation and first-year students have tended to be a main focus for us. Um, particularly in terms of progression and retention issues. We have already run seven three-day intensive training programs for level three through to level six students, four of which have been exclusive for level three students. And we have another three three-day three intensive programs to go this year. We have more, we've had more than 800 students who've registered their interest in the program. And we've got around 400 students who have participated in the program. New for this year, and I'm quite excited about this, we are piloting two two-day staff training programs. The aim here is to look at ways of promoting more dynamic and engaging and an engaging teaching environment. We talked about resilience and how these programs can help. And the focus of these programs is how to use the grit. Uh, coaching methodology in practice with our students, both in personal tutoring, tutoring and the teaching environment. So I think, in a nutshell, the QHT grant has allowed us to offer the programme free to all of our students. It's allowed us to extend our programmes to students across the whole university, which we couldn't do in the pilot studies. You know, some staffs had suggested that their students, students say from computer science, law, biosciences, that our students would be interested in this kind of program. It hasn't proved to be the case. And I think that's the beauty of, I mean, going back to the point you mentioned at the very beginning, it's the beauty of philanthropic funding is that many of these things could not happen for free to the people who need it most if this sort of grant making wasn't wasn't around, wasn't available to them. So, um, and I think you've summarised it absolutely beautifully. And I don't know about you, the listeners, but I am absolutely engaged and intrigued by it and just in awe of its impact. So all that's really left to say is thank you so much for joining us, Carol. And here's to a happier, healthier and more resilient student body at Westminster and of course, across the UK. So thank, thank you, you for your time. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Finally, let's wrap up with the Computational Journalism Project, which is so exciting for future students and the example of what makes amazing places universities can be in providing world-class facilities and opportunities for young people. So to explain this one for us, I am joined by the exotic-sounding Dr. Massimiliano Fusari, Senior Lecturer and Course Leader at the Digital and Interactive Storytelling Lab 
at the University of Westminster, and the slightly less exotic sounding Jim McClellan, uh, Principal Lecturer in Journalism, also at the University of Westminster. So thank you both for joining me. No problem. Okay, so straight off the bat, on the application for the QHT, I saw the words dedicated and automated newsroom and 360 VR journalism app. This already sounds brilliant, but can you just highlight um, what what has been set out for the upscaling of computational journalism at Westminster? Um, what's what's the project got to uh, got to offer? Well, I think what we wanted to do with the project was really upgrade um, the kind of kit that we allowed students to use, the way we taught it, the kind of skills that we were teaching them. Mm. Not just journalism students, but media students. We recognise. I mean, I mean, Westminster has always been about that. Journalism and the media has always been kind of cutting edge at Westminster, but things were changing so fast. So many new technologies were coming on stream. We wanted to give the students a chance to sort of play around with those. So. We talked about basically recognizing that workflows are just completely online now in the media. So we wanted to kind of create a, a sort of infrastructure. This is kind of the boring bit, I suppose, create an infrastructure to allow students to move across platforms seamlessly. So to be shooting video, outputting it to the web, to YouTube, to social media, to different platforms, all via the same tools, because that's the way the industry works now. So that's one part of it. And then another part of it is actually focusing on individual technologies and these are very new things like augmented reality and vr where the news business hasn't hasn't completely cracked how to use those so what we want to do is almost make our students participants in the process of exploring how best to use those you know when new technology yeah. um, come on stream you know it often takes a newsroom and journalists a few a few years to figure out how to do that so we wanted to put those technologies, those augmented reality VR technologies in the hands of students to enable them to gain skills and go in and play a leading role when they kind of work in media companies in the future. And then I think the final strand is to explore apps and app development and explore apps that, that deliver a more kind of critical take on what the app experience can be. I think we want to kind of what we want to do longer term is embed app creation and, and the tools and templates and systems to help students create apps in our courses. But in the meantime, I think Massimiliano, and I'm sure he'll talk about this later, has a kind of plan for an app that, research, that, that, that explores different research themes that enable students to explore and play with different ideas. So a different kind of app, a sort of conceptual app, if you like. Um, and then from developing that and involving students in it, we then kind of build that kind of process into our teaching too. So a long answer, Brett. Sorry, but I hope it covered it. So. No, that's brilliant. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah, Massimiliano, do you have anything to like um, to add in that? That's exactly the point that uh, we are trying to achieve through the very generous funding that the QHT uh, gave us. So we are trying to provide students and support students and work with students, which I understand is one of the main concern, if not the mission of the QHD uh, initiative. So we have been crafting uh, our works towards what is now named as the Meta Image Mobile App, which exactly address the concern that Jim raised before me, because the visual is so much it's a, such a great part of our current daily lives that uh, yeah. that is surprising mm -hmm. that very little attention it gets outside our uh, school arts. So we are trying to actually 
tackle that issue and provide journalists and everyone who is interested with the opportunity to to increase their abilities to understand and produce the visual. This is what the Meta Image mobile app is all about. That's absolutely fantastic. And again, like it's that, you know, providing students with the, the skill sets, the abilities to be able to crack a market that maybe is still kind of coming to fruition. It's still like developing, it's still learning. So that's absolutely fantastic. And okay, so this covers more than just journalism, however. It extends into mobile, multimedia, visual communication. So so what's the desired reach for this infrastructure? What's the potential for, for use for students and for external partners who maybe want to utilize this infrastructure? So I, I think the once we kind of uh, supported by the QHD, once we bought all this kit and bought the kind of online systems that kind of enable this kit to sort of work, you know, together, all these different pieces of kit to work together. Once we've done that, that that is available for all media students and for other students within um, the University of Westminster, give students the chance to play around with and kind of critically interrogate the different ways we communicate online visually. Um, I mean, in terms of specific projects, I know that um, via our emerging media space at, uh, at so the Harrow campus, that students in the arts area, like the photography students and some of the fine arts students have experimented with some of the cameras that have been bought um, as part of the QHT bid. So they played around with 360, they played around with some of the Brilliant. AR kind of tools to build kind of art things as well as the more kind of journalistic things that our media students do. And we've also managed to do from that, you know, we've managed to take this kid out or do kind of external events as well. So I think as we, um, it, it feels so long ago now, but earlier in the year, um, as the lockdown was happening, we had a big event um, arranged where we were discussing the future of the BBC, um, using a lot of the QHT technologies, um, some of the kind of cameras that port directly to the internet that work over IP using other kind of remote working tools. We basically were able to run that kind of conference online virtually. Now, everybody kind of takes it for granted now because obviously we've mm. got remote working, but I think we couldn't have done that without the kind of technology and it showed that we can adapt it and use it in various kind of ways and actually that's one of the interesting things about the kit that we've bought and the way that we're going to extend it out is is we've seen that the pandemic has changed the way the media business works right you know we're sitting here in our own homes recording this podcast via our computers using various kind of apps increasingly media workers are doing this they're working remotely and i think the way that we're extending um the project is to recognize this and to buy technologies that don't just enable the students to work over the internet but essentially put together a tv program at home put together a radio show at home using simple kind of app switching tech using the tech that they have at home so it was a forward it was a forward-looking kind of bid but you know yeah. great yeah. that the qhd supported it because the, the idea was not to embed stuff in a physical location i think the qhd was said look they wanted to support stuff that was mobile that could move anywhere and i think the yeah. the initial idea was that they didn't want to kind of locate the technology in one room in Harrow or something on, on our Harrow campus. Yeah. But actually what it's meant is it's recognized, it recognized the way that the media was much more mobile and online. And it's put us in a really good position now to even build on that as the pandemic makes everything kind of remote and mobile, et cetera. So, so I think it was, it was a forward looking bid. It anticipated the future, but it obviously none of us anticipated the pandemic, no. but it's put us in a great place to respond to it. Excellent. Okay. So, I mean, 
we've kind of touched on it there, but one of the things we're most proud of as an institution is this innovative ethos that we have. And this project, I, I personally see it as a kind of microcosm of that ideology of disruptive thinking. So can you just highlight how does this technology kind of future-proof us and also what are the developments in journalism and visual multimedia that you've seen across the sector that means that this infrastructure puts our students in the best possible place to respond and to, to create, to innovate? Well, uh, if, uh, if we could future-proof ourselves, then we'll be in a fantastic place to solve all the problem. Unfortunately, we can only speculate on which scenarios we might be able to anticipate and to engage. So at Westminster, we try to uh, exactly work with the ethos you mentioned, which is disruptive, which is thinking ahead, which is innovating. And what we are trying to do, and the QHD has been supporting us to do so, is by uh, providing critical uh, competencies and analytical competencies for students trying to speculate with the best of our understanding of what might be the short-term to medium-term scenarios and engage them in a proactive way. And I'm, I'm much more recent than Jim at Westminster. I just joined uh, this university five years ago, four years ago, actually. And uh, what I have, uh, what made me choose this place is the ability to engage in a proactive manner the new dynamics that continuously evolve in front of us and shift uh, as whenever we think we have uh, we have got them they keep mm. on moving and moving one step uh, uh, beyond this is particularly true for journalism this is particularly true for all what we understand as mobile multimedia and communication in the broader sense. And so actually we are, we are trying to support students to establish and craft for themselves uh, a critically informed approach to this subject, to this concern, to these challenges. And I think this is the strength of Westminster and of this bid. Terrific. Yeah, it's about being fluid, but also looking ahead. And yeah, the QHC matches that completely. So yeah, I mean, I, I, mean, if I, I could add something, Brett. I mean, I think um, yeah, one thing to add is obviously, we're supported by the Quinton Hogg Trust. I mean, Quinton Hogg um, was a disruptor before people were called disruptors. That's the yes. interesting thing. I think, I think a lot of academics at Westminster really draw inspiration from what he did. You know, I look at what he did and what he was about was teaching new things to new groups of students. He was about kind of expanding what we taught and he was about expanding the kinds of people that we taught. And yeah. as a philosophy really fits into what we want to do. We want to teach new ways of doing journalism, new ways of doing interactive storytelling, new ways of engaging people online. And we want to make sure our students and our students aren't the kind of the classic students who go into the media. They aren't Oxbridge students, right? It's a different group of students. We want to give them the chance to get into the media, to, you know, to build careers there and to diversify the media and rectify some of the problems that they have. So, so for us, like Quentin Hogg is an inspiration in terms of what he wanted to do. And we really do see that in kind of what we're doing with the project. Absolutely. And it's about responding to not only the sector, but building that person. That person is the storyteller. So they're the, 
they're the person that needs to have the tools at their fingertips, really, isn't it? So, um, okay. So I've also, you've, I've noted that you mentioned research earlier on as being a potential benefit um, for having this technology. So what kind of research has or is being conducted with use of this uh, new infrastructure? For us, research is not just publishing on peer review papers and uh, it's about making an impact, making a difference making a making sure that through the work we do and the think that we think by ourselves and that with the students jointly and that's why we are so proud of working actually even in the lab ethos we want to continuously improve and sensibly engage social concern and social issue and make an impact this impact can be done through peer reviews um, topics i've just uh, published two articles one of which is quite coincidentally considering the meta image mobile app that we are developing from the photograph to the meta image and it address all the main concerns about the shift from the analog to the digital and what that means for everyday users uh, it's not about pure theory, it's about making things understandable and usable for everyone and clearly in first for our students. I mean, to add to that, to add to what Massimiliano says, research means lots of things. And I think obviously Massimiliano is, is drawing on what he's been doing around the app to sort of output in, in a more traditional way, if you like, via paper, articles and journals. One of the things that we also hope to do is gain knowledge and research how you teach these kinds of new technologies, how you teach them effectively, how you embed them into courses. And that's one of the things that we hope to do in the last phase of the project. When, when things ease with the kind of pandemic and social distancing is actually to get students back on campus playing around with the technology and then from there research the best ways to teach these so that we can embed mm. them further in the course. So that's brilliant. And we've uh, obviously we've been focusing on you know the student and the student development and providing them with the tools and such but uh, i mean this submittal to the qht was made i mean back in 2018 2019 um and it goes without saying that those facilities were were chosen for the students to develop their skills as they transition into that world of work that you've touched on so have you seen an impact on the employability of our students thanks to this experience that they've gained with the technology available um or you've or in fact, maybe you're finding that the sector is moving so quickly that, um, that, that that it's all about kind of providing the chance for students to develop those skills so that they can make an impact there. So, you know, five, 10 years ago, we really upgraded the journalism and media courses to focus more on online and social media. And we see now that our students do very well in terms of picking up jobs in those sectors. So they get jobs in the in the media sector, but not, you know, working for a newspaper, for example. They get yeah. jobs running social media feeds, they get jobs running the kind of online kind of campaign side of an, an operation. So we can see over, you know, introducing change 10 years ago to the courses, we see after about five years, it really plays out for the students. So I think longer term, you'll see you'll see those impacts. I mean, one weird thing is that the, the pandemic has put a damper on kind of entry level um, yeah, jobs. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So it, it means that there are fewer opportunities, 
That said, I think if our students arrive in, an, in a job market when things restart a bit after the pandemic passes, if they arrive in a job market with these kind of skills, they're going to be very well placed. And, you know, the media will be will also be kind of better placed to kind of take advantage of them. But but to bring it back, I think we, we are definitely seeing we can see an impact in terms of what students can do on the course and we can see them you know, getting into kind of traditional broadcasters to, to apply those skills, um, you know, and to show them new ways of doing things. We can start to see that. We had a group um, two years ago who was some of the first groups to use, and it's fairly simple technology, but the, the, the QHT kind of funded it for us. They were using uh, cameras um, out doing external broadcasts, but networking via IP with our kind of newsroom and our studio on the Harrow campus. So before we'd just not been able to do that. So what it meant was that the students could report live from College Green outside the Houses of Parliament during the Brexit debates. Um, so various kind of debates about the Brexit agreements a couple of years ago. So students were, were with very simple kit, able to do what professional broadcasters do, right? With, with simple sure. kit. And you could see they were so excited. Uh, here I am reporting live from College Green behind me, the, <laughs> the MPs are being, and, and those students I know have gained in confidence got the confidence to go to places like the BBC for kind of placements and are now well placed to kind of move in there. So I Absolutely. And I guess, like you said, you know, it, it, I said 2018, like it was a long time ago, but actually in the life cycle of a student who's going through those kind of job roles, really, it's, it's you know, it's very early days, but it's great to see that you've already been able to, able to see those kind of, those small kind of like glimmers of a development in the student as they move into that kind of, that world that they've been so well prepared for. So, um, that's it, really. And all I've got to say is thank you once more to uh, Massimiliano and to Jim for joining me um, in a world where it's so difficult to imagine anything outside our own homes. It's really gratifying uh, to know that universities are still places that we can offer these innovative opportunities for students uh, to produce and create content that we might um, never have been able to see. So thank you both. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. Beth. Thank you. And there we have it. Another episode has flown by and hopefully you found it as fascinating as we did to hear about the developments and educational opportunities offered to our students, all made possible by QHT funding. Yes, and as you heard from each of the project leads, they are so thankful for the trust support. And now this could be you. Our alumni, supporters and friends are best placed to understand the needs of the Westminster student body. And there are so many ways that you're able to get involved. If you do wish to know uh, what projects are uh, able to suit your interests, then visit us at the website, which is www.westminster.ac.uk forward slash support dash us. Or contact us at development at westminster.ac.uk to start a conversation. But for now, all that's left to say is thank you, thank you, thank you to the Quentin Hogg Trust and to you for joining us. And until next time.